90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Whew, I'm glad to be back in the land of electronics, and I never thought I would say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time since we've recorded the same week as we released. We had a couple of pre-recorded shows there because you were traveling and so was I. Uh, yeah, exactly. I bet there was a lot more electronic you know, connectivity where you were <laughs> uh, than where I was, which is both the good and the bad thing about national parks, I guess. It depends on what you're out there looking for. But I'd hoped I would tweet all these cool pictures of all these cool places that we were hiking. But alas, the only place we had uh, any cellular phone service was on the coast of California. <laughs> so, you know, say lucky. Yeah, I, I tried to text you to remind you to to tweet and make sure everything was going okay. And I had to try for a couple days before it went yeah. through. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I've sat down, I got back this weekend and sat down to work and have a zillion emails of email chains of, hey, I need this. Hey, where are you? Are you dead? And, you know, that's okay. That's what vacation's for, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've, I've always been tempted to set an autoresponder, but I never have. Oh, I know. Um, I used to when I worked in corporate America, but here I never do because, you know, you just never know. It seems like we're either working all the time or not. So it didn't seem worth it. I think everyone figured out that I was camping in the wilds. Um, we got to see some really cool national parks and some really under visited national parks that I can't wait to go back to. So if anyone's interested, Lassen National Park, they should look that up. And then Great Basin. Totally top-notch facilities it was super great so but i'm glad to be back <laughs> oh yes and i am too but i unfortunately am not back for long <laughs> uh it seems like i think every summer for the rest of our lives is going to be like this this is just the life of an academic uh where are you off to next <laughs> <laughs> i am off to indiana to a usra short course so usra you know it has to do with the earth scope array that passed a bunch of seismometers and instruments over the continental U.S. And so this is a course on how to use their data and some processing techniques. And it should be really good. Uh, it'll be rather intense because we do have a project that we have to do and present. Uh, basically, that's a nighttime hacking thing that you do after the course every day and then present Friday. Oh, wow. So they're making you do homework while you're there? That doesn't necessarily sound as fun as going camping in national parks <laughs> <laughs> well i think it'll be interesting we've already had some some pre-work running some things on a high performance computer cluster so that was kind of fun so oh, i'm looking yeah. forward to learning a little bit more about that yeah i guess you don't get access to those every day so uh that sounds really cool and informative is this a big conference do you know or i mean a big workshop or i think we're looking around 20 or 25 students Okay. So not, not huge. No, that's nice. I feel like you learn a lot more in those small settings, so I hope you get a lot out of that. Yeah, I'm sure, and I'll tell folks about it. Uh, there's going to be quite a few instructors there, so I think there's going to be a pretty good student-instructor ratio, and I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, but that'll be a couple weeks down the road because next week we have a special show coming up. That's right. So all the buzz in the... 
I guess if you're interested in the planetary sciences, is from New Horizons. Yes, and this is a really cool mission, and our good friends over at the Orbital Mechanics have directed their audience towards us to talk about geology on Pluto, which we're happy to do once we can read more about it, because things are coming <laughs> out every day at this point. Uh, it's kind of cool, um, because no one knows anything about the geology of Pluto till New Horizons got close enough to show us all kinds of cool things that are going on there. And as New Horizons sends back pictures, there's a lot of glacial processes and all kinds of cool atmospheric interactions that are going on on the planet that we really had no idea about. So I'm really excited to, as the new pictures come in over the next week, to check out uh, what they've found out and talk about our little guy, Pluto. Yeah, and, you know, as kind of a teaser for one of the things that we'll talk about next week, uh, we'll talk about how the photo that they had of Pluto as a whole right before the flyby was almost lost. (laughs) Oh, yeah, terrifying. (laughs) Yes, absolutely terrifying. (laughs) And I I just looked it up a second ago. Uh, Right now, New Horizons is going something like 14 and a half kilometers per second. Unbelievable. So incredibly fast. Uh, really yeah. cool stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. They're, the pictures are wonderful. So, you know, if you want to get ready for that show, I encourage you guys to go out and look at some of the New Horizons photographs that they've sent back from Pluto and get excited. Yes. So we're really excited to have that show next week. But today I wanted to talk about presenting results which I'm sure a lot of the New Horizons team will be doing at (laughs) conferences and what we have to do to present at conferences, which is everybody's favorite activity. (laughs) It's true. Abstract writing. Exactly. (laughs) And this is probably everybody's least favorite couple of weeks because two big deadlines are coming up. Um, First, the AGU abstracts are due on the 5th of August, and then GSA is due on the 11th. So... I know that this is usually a pretty busy time for most people in the geosciences. Right. And for people that aren't familiar with that, AGU is the American Geophysical Union, and GSA is the Geological Society of America. I've never been to GSA, but AGU is over 20,000 people every year. Oh, yeah. No, GSA is a much smaller conference. Um, I imagine this year it's going to be pretty big, though, because it's going to be in Baltimore, Maryland. So you're going to have a lot of attendees versus last year when the Geological Society of America was in Vancouver, Canada. <laughs> so I think this will right. be a pretty big meeting. Well, and you know, it's it's pretty close to me, but I don't think I'm going to be able to go because I have another conference around the same time and then AGU after that. And right around that time, I'm also getting married. <laughs> Oh, fine. I guess that takes up some time. (laughs) Yeah, so even though it's close, I don't think this will be the year for me to get to GSA. But I see in the show notes that you have something about emoji and abstracts, and I want to know what this is. (laughs) Yes, so (laughs) this being my first year teaching, I've decided that I'm, you know, while I might attend GSA and AGU, I'm probably not going to be writing an abstract just because I've been so busy with teaching. Um, And so I got on GSA just to look at some of the topics, and they said that now you can basically search their abstracts will be tagged with emojis based on (laughs) what sort of realm it is. So if you're in economic geology, there's a little cash sign emoji (laughs) 
<laughs> or if you're doing <laughs> like geodesy, there's sort of like a little compass emoji. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of neat though, too, because in conferences, especially like AGU, they're so big. And when you sit down to look at the technical program, either in the actual printed version or on your you know, iPad or whatever, it's kind of hard. So as cheesy as that seemed, I'd probably use it. You know, I, I don't know if using Unicode emoji is the answer, though. <laughs> I think a lot of the answer has to do with making conference websites not suck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I Yes, I struggle with this because, as you know, I'm the non-technologist, so I'm the one that has, like, the paper every day with all the stuff, and I make notes in the margins of my paper, and as I try to use these conference websites, some of them do suck pretty bad. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I remember last year at AGU, I don't remember if we talked about this in the AGU wrap-up show, but you could make your schedule online, which I thought was great. So I put a lot of time into making my schedule, and then I downloaded the conference app, and the conference app didn't sync your schedule from your online account. You had to make it in the app. Oh, which you would have liked to have known before you did that. (laughs) Yeah, that was a gigantic fail. Mm -hmm. But... (laughs) It's it's growing pains. (laughs) But writing the abstract itself can be pretty complicated. I mean, you've got to do all this preparation to write it and actually write it and then figure out how to get it submitted after you deal with getting all your co-authors to approve it. It can be quite the process. So you should just do it like how, as a grad student, I always did it, which was my advisor would come into my office a day before abstracts were due and say, hey, you should write an abstract for this. (laughs) And then you don't have to worry about any of that. Free planning or anything like you're going to talk about today. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I don't know. It really, I think if you do these pre planning steps hours before it's due or even a day before it's due, it doesn't really work for me because I want to write it and then have a day or two to mull it over and then come back to it and then polish it a little bit and then think about it a little while more. Well, absolutely. And that's what's going to make a good abstract versus, you know, one that gets accepted by the skin of its teeth. So people should definitely listen to you and not me when it comes to this. (laughs) (laughs) But the first thing you have to do, regardless of when you're writing it, is figure out what you want to write. Yeah. And this can be tricky, not only because maybe you have a lot of projects that you're working on, or maybe you only have one that has a negative result, (laughs) which should still be presented. Exactly. But... How how many times do you show the same project at the same conference or even at different conferences? Uh, exactly. And that's something that, especially I feel as a PhD student, you struggle with more because you're sort of focused on, like my thesis had three chapters. So I was sort of focused on three main, you know, concepts. And you go through and you present those three concepts, but then a year later you've got a lot more data And then a year after that, you're wrapping it up, or some of them are being left open for future use. So where do you know when enough is enough? And where do you know where, you know, I need to revisit this, people need to see it again? And I think that's hard, and I think it really just depends on your own personal research. But it's an interesting sort of thought that I've struggled with as I get further away from, you know, my PhD topics. Yeah, no, I think that that's a good point. And there is a line. It also a little bit depends on the session organizers. But there are some people that I've seen that have had the same poster for three years. I certainly like when they ask you, 
in your abstract submission, you know, what percentage of this have you presented before? Because there are a lot of people doing science now, right? It's the tagline of our show. <laughs> and right. so even if you're chairing a session, like I did a couple years ago at AGU, you know, you might not be up to date on everybody's exact sort of projects, especially if you're chairing sort of a broadly topic session session. So I found that really useful. And I sort of started applying that to my own research, like how much more of this is new? And that was a really useful metric when sort of deciding, should I actually submit this again or should I wait till I have 25% more new stuff? Yeah, and I think that's a really good way to think about it. And another thing that you could think about is when you're writing the abstract, you know, I've heard a lot of people say that they do most of their data processing and analysis in the three <laughs> weeks before AGU. Yeah. <laughs> which is most definitely after the abstract was submitted. So how do you write an abstract when you don't know what the data is fully telling you yet? And oh. you can definitely read some abstracts that are pretty vague. <laughs> yeah, I think this is an art form all to itself, um, is the art of the vague abstract, <laughs> you know, and the you, the word preliminary <laughs> gets thrown around quite a bit in that, you know, thousand words that you're trying to work on. <laughs> um, you know, the data may show us, if it does, this will be the implications. Um, and I think... I think you should have to do that every once in a while. But of course, what could happen to that, which is something that happened to me before, is that your entire talk changes in between abstract submittal and actual presentation <laughs> at a conference. So It's one of those things where your abstract is titled Effects of X on Y, and then your presentation <laughs> says X has no effect on Y. Uh, that would have been After good for you me. Analyze the data. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what I did instead was I had my original slide from my abstract up, and then I had the Monte Python foot come down, and I said, "And now for something completely different." <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's how I. It, it was. There was luckily it was a small conference, and there were a lot of English people there who super loved um, that Monty Python reference. So that's how I got over my debacle, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, starting to submit something or starting to process your data more than a month before is a good idea. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Abstract Mad Libs <laughs> from oh, PhD Comics. <laughs> uh, you should definitely check it out. It's funny because it's partially true. <laughs> of the, the general outline of an abstract that goes something like, this paper presents a synonym for new, method for sciency verb, <laughs> using something you didn't invent. <laughs> it's like they took one of mine and just erased words out of it. Uh, that's, that's great. It's so true. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> I hope Don't start there you. when you're submitting your abstract... <laughs> or if you yeah, only have you see hours people to do go. things like that, or you see people that have it spell out something. Yes, um, that's really hard though, because you never know how that final sort of you know presentation is going to come out on that abstract. That's impressive, I think. But I think there are a lot of really good ways to lay out your abstract, and we've talked about some of this before. You know, like mind maps and outlines. I'm a big fan of mind maps. 
Mm-hmm. And then there are some people that I've seen that just basically do stream of conscience writing and then go back and edit if necessary. <laughs> Hopefully it's necessary if you're stream of consciousness writing. But uh, um, have you ever tried that? I saw that you had written this in the show notes and I'm intrigued by that because I am not a good... I'm a good editor, but I like to sort of get it as close as I can the first time. And so I don't know if that would work for me. I didn't know if that kind of thing would work for you. Oh, no, no. My <laughs> my brain likes outlines and or mind maps of things. I figured you much more. Like <laughs> now, I do sometimes, if I'm trying to come up with, you know, how might I solve this problem, try a sort of stream of conscience approach where I'll just write down different things that I'm thinking of to try to solve problem X, but I don't do it for mm-hmm. writing because my stream of conscience is very poor grammar. It's bullet pointed is what I imagine it being. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> um, that's an, that's an interesting thought though. Um, maybe I'll try that sometime if I'm ever submitting an abstract more than 10 hours before it's due. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the hazards of doing that, and this is a little bit later in well, the outline for the show. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how many years I have almost wagered money on the abstract deadline will be extended because the abstract submission system goes down hours before yes. the deadline because everyone gets on it. And it always does. It does. It always does. And I'm always hoping it does so I can make a better abstract. <laughs> And that's one of those things where, you know, chairing a session last year and then uh, I thought, man, this session is going to be a disaster. We have two abstracts. Mm-hmm. And then while I was asleep the night that abstracts <laughs> were due, the other 20-odd came in. <laughs> oh, it's so true. It always makes me feel better about my procrastination skills when stuff like that happens. Um, but the, the scary, I mean, the hazard besides, you know, not having read your data correctly and possibly overlooked an implication when you rush through that, the other hazard, um, which I know is one of your pet peeves is not actually following the rules for the abstract because you're in such a hurry to submit it. And that's a real big pain. Oh, yes. When... This doesn't only apply to abstracts, it also applies to papers. I don't know how many times you try to submit something somewhere and you get a file from a collaborator and it doesn't follow the formatting guidelines at all. Mm-hmm. And it's just because they didn't bother to read the guidelines from the conference. <laughs> and from a convener standpoint, let me tell you, that's really annoying. Oh, yeah. And if you're taking in data, I mean, sometimes if you're doing like, say, an extended abstract, which is pretty popular these days, you know, you have to do all that formatting yourself. And it's very specific. And if somebody's sending you stuff in a Word document, that's just a page full of things, and you have to put it into two column format, that's a lot of time on your part to change their lack of, you know, taking the time to do it themselves. And that's not really fair. And you don't want to get a sort of a bad rap about that kind of thing because man I hate having to format two column formatting and if somebody doesn't give it to me in that format that's pretty crappy yeah and especially I've seen it where there are templates and people just don't use the template yeah 
And it's yes. like, oh, come on. Like, this is... I know. <laughs> this is a relatively... So, so please, if you're going to submit an abstract, uh, a lot of the online submission systems now make it pretty hard to not follow the rules because they check. Yeah. But mm-hmm. there are still ways people find. So please read the guidelines <laughs> and then read them again before then, you submit this, your abstract or paper. This goes for your thesis, too, because I know our graduate college actually gives you a guideline not a guideline I mean it's a you just plug your words into it and it works out (laughs) why would you not use their pre-formatted template you know so yes absolutely do that yes but I will say when I am starting to write an abstract I generally don't start writing it in the template yeah that is true and if you have a lot of time I don't think that that is a problem and sometimes you might not know either what their template is going to be some things smaller conferences can have some strange sort of ways to submit because they have you know their own ideas about how it should look so you know not a bad yeah well and a lot of is you know i'll start it on the ipad when i'm at starbucks or something and i just write in plain markdown in a, a regular text editor and that's a little easier to pass back and forth too because if you use say a word template well, somebody is going to mess up the template when they're editing it, and then somebody else is going to not be able to open it because it's a .docx, and they only have the old version of Word that's .doc. And then by the time it gets back to you, it's completely unrecognizable as a formatted document. That's actually a really good point, um, which also goes back to giving your thesis advisors your thesis in a pre-formatted template and then having them change things. So, uh, yes, I guess I can relate to that, too. Um, That is a good idea. Just having sort of a plain text editor for people to look at will save you a lot of headaches when you're trying to submit two hours before the deadline. (laughs) Right. So you send it around somehow to your authors and hope they get back to you before the deadline. (laughs) And (laughs) Mm -hmm. you just get that authorship decided, you know, who's going to be on it, who's not going to be on it that kind of thing because a lot of times you'll realize that there are people you forgot to add yep exactly and then it comes to how are you going to send it around this is (laughs) an area still under development and an area where i have not found a happy solution yet i know and i think us putting together this show sort of mirrors these tools for collaborating because you know we have google docs is what we're reading from right now and i know there have been times where i've made an episode outline and john you've gotten mad at me because i've told you i was going to make it and i did make it but you couldn't see it because i forgot to share it with you (laughs) so that could be (laughs) a problem (laughs) but google docs is a pretty decent solution really uh yeah Yeah, it really is. I found that um, the more that I've learned to use it and sort of segregate all my different things in there, the the more that I do use it and use it for, you know, collaborating with people and just say, here, I'm just going to throw this up in here and you guys can add to it. And it works really well. The thing I like about it is everybody has a web browser and Mm -hmm. they can use Google Docs. And the biggest thing is there is one canonical version of the document (laughs) yes exactly you you don't send it out and then every single co-author send you back 
their individually commented version. Exactly. And that's what Dropbox is going to get you, you know. And now it's the job of one person to incorporate all those changes. And if people track changes in Word or if people didn't track their changes and just actually inserted things into the Word document, you sort of have to marry those two you know, corrections, which on an abstract probably isn't as big a deal, but I was just working um, on a proposal, an NSF proposal, and the other people had Macs, I had, you know, Windows, (laughs) and I know there was a little bit of trouble with our computers talking to each other. Luckily, I didn't have a lot of changes, so it wasn't a big deal, but... You know, that could be an issue, and Google Docs takes that away. Yeah, and speaking of Dropbox, I don't know if this happened on Windows, but after the last Office and Word updates on Mac, we now have the little Dropbox badge in the scroll bar in Word, and you can, like, comment in Dropbox between people on a document. Hmm. I haven't used it yet. I will be interested to see how that works out. Yeah, it looks fascinating, but I can't get anyone brave enough to try it with me. <laughs> Maybe we'll try some of the show notes that way and see what happens. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there are many other things. I know you're a big Evernote person. I guess you could <laughs> use that. Uh, yeah, you can. I know you have to have some of the premium services in order to sort of share documents easily through Evernote. I think it does about the same kind of job that Google Docs does, but there aren't enough of my buddies that have premium Evernote that I've gotten to use it sort of in a real-time situation yet. (laughs) So, but if it becomes more prevalent, um, I know Evernote's offering a lot of premium services for a year on a lot of new electronics, so maybe that's something that we'll catch on. Yeah, and the last way that, and this is probably (laughs) the most common way, is just emailing versions of the document back and forth. And if you do this, please, (laughs) please don't tell me about it. (laughs) I know your head can only handle so much technology abuse. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that'll go with the whole, like, naming it final, final two, final, final, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah, underscore date, underscore initials, (laughs) underscore final, underscore 11.35 p.m., (laughs) Just, oh, uh, <laughs> hey, are you brutal. looking at my files? That's what some of them are named. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, um, I will say, you know, there's a bit of a, not just a learning curve gap in using Dropbox and Google Docs, but there's a bit of an age gap. So that's sort of an issue too, I think, in trying to share documents across if you have a wide range of collaborators. So you know, sometimes you just get it by email and you just take it and you put it into Google Docs for everyone else to look at. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a difficult problem. And it's a problem of trying to get everybody to centralize on one service because you'll put something in Dropbox and then somebody says, oh, but I use box.com. <laughs> and then I say, no one's even heard of that. Get off of my paper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... I guess we've got a couple more little notes about AGU and GSA submission uh, before we move on to everybody's favorite segment. Uh, The first one is AGU doing a really interesting thing this year. Uh, Yes, I kept getting these emails and was unable to check anything but the subject line due to my poor um, 
for cellular service on my trip, but I noticed to, to if you put in your submit your age use abstract by today, you get entered to win free registration for the meeting. So I guess that's one of those incentives that they're trying out so conveners don't have to do what you did and, you know, go to sleep and wait for all their abstract submissions to <laughs> come through. And as these conferences get more expensive, I have to say, it's probably kind of a good idea. Yeah, though when you're listening to the show Friday, that deadline will have passed. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, <laughs> There's I will say from a... From a convening standpoint this year, it didn't work. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> but Maybe I, if they offer more. An iPad. Well, and... I think a lot of it worked for students. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. And my session actually doesn't have abstract fees this year. Oh. So I'm not sure if we are going okay. to count for that prize or not. I don't think anyone was. Uh, gotcha. But for your session, you're talking about your pop-up session, right? Yes. So shameless plug, because there (laughs) is still time to submit when you hear the show to this session. Uh, Hannah Rabinowitz and I are having a pop-up session along with several other pop-up sessions uh, that are going on this year. They're for students. They're five-minute talks. Anybody can come and listen, but they're student talks. The sessions that we're having this year are Water Sciences Pop-Ups, Innovations, Challenges, and Future Directions in Hydrology. Uh, Then there's Social Dimensions of Geoscience. And then the one that Hannah and I are hosting is called Keeping Geology Alive, Interactive Demonstrations in the Earth Sciences. Oh, that's cool. I know we've talked about that for a lot of different shows. Um, I will be super excited to see what ideas people have in that sort of realm. Yes, and I mean, last year we had everything from a comic book about uh, a geology superhero (laughs) that was solving a problem to, uh, let's see, mapping the bottom of a fake ocean with an ultrasonic sounder and a little boat on cables. Cool. Uh, All kinds of really neat stuff. And these abstracts, like I said, this year they're free. uh, So thanks, AGU, for that. You don't have to pay the $35 student fee. They also don't count as your, you know, one abstract limit that you can submit or two if you submit to an education session. Uh, So you can submit and then still submit your abstract on your science. So that makes your advisor happy. (laughs) And they're just a lot of fun. They're really informal. We had people standing around for a long time after they were done last year. And these are not organized just by us. Uh, there's lots of other people involved in the organization. Uh, Tim Van Emerick and Sheila are also really involved. So thanks to everybody for getting these together. Um, I think this is a great idea. And I love this sort of, you know, idea of just these five-minute talks. I know a bunch of universities are doing this. Um, our graduate college had sort of these kind of pop-up talks and had competitions within the pop-up talks, talking about your research. And this is really neat. And any time that these like abstracts don't count against you, you should always do them. I feel that way about, I love how AGU makes education abstracts. Also sort of, you know, you can always do an education abstract as you should, because if we're not telling people about our science, then, you know, it's not gonna go anywhere. So those are really cool. And I hope that you get a lot of abstracts for that because I can't wait to see them. 
Well, thanks. And I think our listeners are the perfect audience to submit. So link is in the show notes. And remember that outreach is not just a checkbox on a grant form. It is something that you should be doing. Exactly. So I'll get off that soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you can't get off that soapbox. That's why we started this. uh, That's why we started this podcast, right? Outreach. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's that's true. I have a lot of soapboxes. Yeah, that's true. It's Just step a to a different tower of soap boxes. <laughs> so there are a few problems with abstracts and submitting abstracts. Still, we talked about you know websites being difficult and that kind of thing. But getting ready to submit my AGU abstract on my science, picking a session was really difficult, and I'm still not done. Wow. See, I do paleomagnetism, so this has never been a problem for me. Um, <laughs> there's been a few times that I've sort of gone outside my session, I think much to my advisor's sort of shock a couple of times. And I thought it was really good because I got some feedback from people that wouldn't necessarily have seen my talk had I stayed in a very specific, you know, small session for paleomagnetism. So I think this one, you really need to look around um, because you never know sort of what kind of feedback you're going to get. I did paleomagnetism of these um, Proterozoic Age dikes, plastic dikes in Colorado. And so instead of going to a PMAG session, I went to a Precambrian geology session. It was really fun. Oh, yeah. And I mean, a lot of times you look for people you know and say, oh, I'll submit to that session. But that's not always the best plan. Yeah, exactly. Because in that session, I got a lot of feedback sort of on the looking at like geological provenance for these things that I wouldn't necessarily have gotten had I gone just straight for a PMAG session. So, you know, sometimes you should fight against your advisor if they're really stuck on you being in one specific session or not, because you just don't know where your next inspiration is going to strike. And that's sort of the fun part, too, is going through and seeing all the stuff that could be relevant to what you're trying to talk about. Yeah, and I mean, at this uh, SciPy conference, they didn't have many posters, so all of us, even though there were some specific tracks, we were all right by each other, and everybody was mulling around. And I had a a gentleman visit my poster and said, you know, I was talking about friction and rate and state friction, and he said, I wonder if we could apply this to our robots. And Uh I said, well, what's your problem? And he says, well, moving these sensitive products with robots on a production line, uh, sometimes the joint friction is higher or lower than we expected, and they jerk and destroy the product. And I wonder if we could apply your fault friction model to metal ball-bearing joints and robots to not destroy our product when we move it. That is the perfect example for you never know, because you talk about earthquake modeling, not robots. That is so cool. Right. <laughs> so wow. definitely don't be afraid to get out there and talk to people and submit maybe to a slightly weird session. Exactly. Uh, so then there are also some field-specific trends. I don't know that this affects anything other than the larger conferences like AGU, where some subfields have a very specific way that they... You know, you do this in the introduction or you don't do this in the introduction or you don't have an introduction in your abstract. Right. Yeah, I haven't run into that. But like I said, my field is pretty small anyways. So <laughs> as long as we have people presenting, I don't think anyone cares. 
Well, then there is one that I think might apply to uh, everybody's field, but especially paleo magicians. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's over-reporting. Right, exactly. It kind of goes back to the thing of how many times do you have to say what you're going to say? And I really like the thought of using a specific sort of metric, at least for yourself, and say, what is new? Because if it's less than 25%, people probably don't care. Right. Or, I mean, there's a lot of abstracts that end, it may be a you know a different take on the project, but they all end with a line that ties it to some very large sociological problem, like, and, you know, this 1D numerical model will help us towards world peace. <laughs> That's an abstract I'd like to read. Which sometimes is a... <laughs> yeah, which sometimes is a little bit overstepping. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and I think good conveners will see that, hopefully, and recognize when that kind of stuff is going on, because, you know, humbleness still matters. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I think that's about all I had to say about getting abstracts ready. Everybody should... Uh, get their abstracts ready now because you have less than a week when the show airs for AGU. <laughs> yes, exactly. And only a couple more days uh, for GSA. But uh, be sure and tell us um, what you're thinking about writing your abstract on or hopefully what you've already written your abstract on because we'd love to hear about what you guys are doing this summer. Yeah, and how many people are going to be at AGU or GSA? Because if we have enough people that listen to the show at AGU, uh, there's lots of pubs around. Uh, exactly. Because <laughs> God knows we like to drink beer as much as we like to write abstracts, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Yay! Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> so drink beer and listen to music, because that's sort of what our Fun Paper Friday is about. Yes, and... I couldn't actually find a peer-reviewed publication on this. I don't think it's out yet, but this is the APS news article, and I also saw something about this in Physics Today. It's just too cool not to talk about. Uh, yes. Um, I think this was even on NPR as well, too, and this is some super cool stuff, and it just... I always think about that Carl Sagan sort of notebook where he wrote down, you know, some outside places to get inspiration. And this is sort of the perfect story about how intense metrology and these physicists that work at CERN are helping to preserve old recordings. (laughs) Yeah. So what would you think that measuring trajectories of subatomic particles in a multi-billion dollar particle accelerator and... Alexander Graham Bell's early recordings have in common. (laughs) I wouldn't have thought anything at all. (laughs) Me either. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's really cool because it has a lot to do with it, and it has a lot to do with preserving them using these high-tech imaging techniques because, obviously, Alexander Graham Bell's early recordings are very fragile. Oh, yes. And they say in the article that this would be like trying to play eight-track tapes with an iPod. It just doesn't work. Uh, So this was done by Carl Haber and Earl Cornell. 
And they basically used a modified confocal microscope and imaged the foils or wax cylinders or whatever format these really early recordings were on. And then from those images, were able to reconstruct the audio stored on them, even though these were too fragile to actually play with any kind of contacting needle. Exactly. And one of their, as you mentioned, Alexander Graham Bell early recordings, um, the best part is they have a recording from one of his labs where Bell was testing things and something didn't work. And I'm guessing he dropped the F-bomb is basically what it says. And this was a recording that hadn't ever been heard, but they imaged it, used software, and played it back. And that's pretty spectacular. Yeah, it has to be pretty incredible to hear, you know, a voice from 150 years ago. (laughs) And not only, you know, making important scientific discoveries, but screwing up, because that's what happens (laughs) in science. (laughs) So it's not only, you know, these old Alexander Graham Bell and these old scientific recordings, but also ethnographers, anthropologists, and linguists are working together with these particle physicists to help restore some of their earliest recordings that they have preserved in their field but haven't been able to ever hear yeah and they have several of these machines set up the machines are called irene which like every good acronym (laughs) stands for something that's a little bit humorous uh it's image reconstruct erase noise (laughs) etc which i imagine um is the iterative process that they go through when (laughs) recreating these recordings yeah and They actually have a decent amount. Uh, They got a MacArthur Fellowship in 2013 that's 125 grand for the next five years from 2013, which is enough to keep things rolling, but not really enough to keep the project moving comfortably. Right. Exactly. This is a really great story about sort of the interconnectedness of all these fields, because just like I said, ethnologists are using this, linguists are using this, and getting the money to at least get it started is a great way to start preserving some of our human history using these extremely sort of probably obscure to many people scientific methods. Yeah. And Carl Haber had a quote that I really liked. He says, society supports blue sky research. And if we can give back to show how STEM fields benefit other fields like humanities, it's important. Exactly. That's so true. (laughs) So this whole story, when you sent this fun paper, reminds me of um, when we got our brand new scanning electron microscope. I know I've talked about this on the show, but the um, guy from the company that came to help set it up, what he had was a piece of a record. And his son is a recording artist. And so what he did was he was imaging the record on the SEM, and he was going to make like a piece of art for his son for his birthday out of it. And I thought that was really neat. Oh, yeah, that's super cool. <laughs> yeah, and it's and exactly actually, what they're doing I'll link, here. I'll link in the show notes over at Applied Science. They have a, uh, a GIF that they made of a needle in a record groove with an SEM, and it actually gets pulled through the groove, and you see it move. It's pretty neat. That is a super cool. I've seen that as well. That is super neat. I agree. Well, that is your Fun Paper Friday for this week. So if you have an idea for a Fun Paper Friday, want to tell us about your abstract or where we can find you at all the conferences that are going to be coming up, uh, you should send that to us. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? 
Well, they can email us any of their info, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can leave us a note on our website, don'tpanicgeocast.com. As always, we're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. Great. We look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding.